0: This is Southern Arch Heretic, Shifting the Burden, Opening Statements, The Proof, and The Cosmological Argument. I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. Welcome back to my Shifting the Burden series where the proof for the existence of God is placed into a criminal trial setting and the burden is on the believer to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The non-believer is presumed correct in our exercise. How does the evidence hold up? Let's explore it. Opening statements. After a jury has been picked, sworn in, and instructed by the judge, Basically to pay attention, wait until the end to make any decisions and that the defense has no burden to prove anything, say anything, or even present a case if it doesn't want to, the prosecutors begin with an opening statement and the defendants get to follow with an opening statement, after which the so-called proof begins. An opening statement, especially for the prosecutor usually involves outlining the evidence they intend to present and how it will prove each and every element of the statutory violation beyond a reasonable doubt for the defense an opening statement is an opportunity to state the specific defenses to the facts alleged in the prosecutors opening statement and or to double down on the please do your job as an unbiased juror and hold the prosecutor to their burden argument. I'm going to do my best and attempt to be fair in my presentation of the believers case. The most difficult task thus far with this endeavor is assuming the position of the believers and attempting to compile the evidence to present. I will refer to the expertise and opinions of the generally accepted authorities and experts in order to best frame the arguments. I am, of course, only human, and so admittedly have not read and would be incapable of reading every possible source, but will present the believer's argument to the best of my ability. In no way am I holding this out to be the example of perfection when it comes to these arguments or the defenses. I've tried to do my best. Uh, I've tried to do my homework. I've tried to study the available information in order to prepare as if I were the prosecution and as if I were the defense. If the sources studied to prepare for this were exhaustive, I would most likely be dead from exhaustion. Since the believers get to go first and have the burden, they also help determine the structure and organization of this trial slash exercise. To make an opening statement for both sides will serve no purpose here, and I don't want to immediately try and play two roles at the same time, I just don't possess that level of talent. It will be more illuminating to simply explain what arguments I intend to address and the structure of this exercise in general. Since the burden is on the believers, I endeavor to present the evidence through reference to experts, but organized by specific arguments and the defenses, including the legal objections, instead of direct examination and cross-examination of specific witnesses. I think this will not only lead to more cohesive arguments, but again, it hopefully avoids the bad screenplay comparison. So, with that in mind, the believers will present the following arguments to try and overcome the presumption that the non-believers are correct first we will address the cosmological argument this simply put is the argument that everything must have a cause and because the universe exists something must have caused it and the only explanation is a supernatural one therefore god i am simplifying for brevity and a further more in-depth discussion will be taken up as we work our way through this series next we will take up the teleological argument. This is the intelligent design argument. The basic premise is that the complexities and organization in the universe prove an intelligent designer. Again, we will explore this argument in much greater detail when we address it later in the series. We will address the transcendental argument, also known as the moral argument this is the premise that logic and morality are absolute universals are abstract and are immaterial realities which could not exist in a materialist universe and presupposes an immaterial and all-powerful God if God did not exist pursuant to this argument we could not rely upon absolute universals such as logic reason or morality the ontological argument will be presented to the best of my ability. I must be honest and inform you that this one confuses me, or at least in my mind holds very little sway. It is an argument that by definition requires zero evidence and is purely a philosophical line of reasoning. It basically proposes that because in our minds, even those who deny God's existence, we can conceive of an all-powerful God, meaning a being that is all-powerful without end, can't ask a question he can't answer, never got stuck on a crossword. Quantum physics seems like kindergarten addition to him. Human thought is so primitive that it's a waste of time to this perfect fucking being. You understand the kind of awe-inspiring, unfathomable, without beginning and without imperfection I'm describing? If you can imagine it, then God must exist in reality. If he only existed in our mind, then the existence of an even greater being must be a possibility. One that exists in our mind and in reality. That's an awful big contradictory conundrum, mister. Therefore, God must exist. This is the premise put forth by St. Anselm of Canterbury in his 1078 work, Proslogion. If you are confused by this, or it just sounds like some fun with words bullshit to you, join the club. We will investigate some more modern versions of this argument in hopes of making some sense of it. Next, and maybe most important for the believers, is the christological argument there are many forms of and prongs to this argument and i will do my best to address them but the basic premise is that if certain claims about jesus are valid it proves that god exists we will also take a deep dive into the biblical argument that the christological and biblical arguments will overlap and intertwine because they are inseparable The modern Christological argument is predicated on the reliability of the New Testament and the Bible in general. Obviously, there are issues that will be raised regarding authenticity and reliability of documents and sources. The Bible, Old and or New Testament, does not escape these objections, but even with the objections on the record, we'll still explore it we'll take each argument in turn and present the defense by raising questions and presenting alternative points and arguments. Remember you agreed as a juror to hold any opinion as to the ultimate question until you've heard all the alleged evidence and challenges to that alleged evidence and until you've heard the arguments. Now, obviously I am writing this from a certain perspective and point of view. I have not hidden the fact that I am indeed a non-believer. My intention and hope is to provide an accurate accounting and expression of the arguments made by believers and then to refute them. I will confess to and admit that I am a simplifier by nature and not a complicator. Because of this, it may be argued that I overly simplify certain arguments. However, I will try my best to convey the arguments clearly. If I fail in this endeavor in any meaningful way, it is not for lack of effort. Although I have put research effort into this exercise as if I were preparing to question expert witnesses on the subject matter and argue the case, I have chosen to have some fun with it, and hopefully the inner workings of a trial attorney's brain will sneak into this a bit. It is intended for the masses, not grad school classes. I am unapologetically standing on the shoulders of all who have studied, written, and spoken on the subject matter, which I hope to convey with clarity if not some level of understanding. I have approached this as an attorney preparing for trial. This means a crash course and many consecutive hours scouring sources of any possible surprise evidence or argument. The sources I have read, perused, scanned, devoured, and referred to are available to anyone willing to look for them. And I am happy to provide the citation and source material to anyone that has a question. I hope to include the information as I go in any case. I in no way intend to steal anyone's original idea. This is not an attempt to reinvent the wheel. One of the requirements of the believers is to prove the alleged truth of God's existence and intercession using reliable evidence. So what constitutes reliable evidence? Relevant evidence that we can trust to be authentic and accurate might be one way of thinking about it. We can start by looking at the rules of evidence to determine the definition of relevant evidence, which is generally admissible unless there are objections pursuant to the U.S. Constitution, state constitution, or some other codified rule. I will refer to the federal rules just for continuity. Rule 401 of the federal rules of evidence states that evidence is relevant if A it has any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be without the evidence and b. the fact is of consequence in determining the action. As you can see the definition is fairly broad and the default at least in the jurisdiction where I practice is to allow most relevant evidence to be presented to the jury. Obviously other rules and thought processes come into play when determining whether or not relevant evidence is reliable. There are also other considerations when determining whether or not evidence is admissible, and I will try and raise the legal objections as we explore the different arguments in alleged proof. What constitutes evidence or proof of God? I think many believers would immediately turn to the Bible as a source. Of course, there are numerous and varied objections that can be raised related to the authenticity and origin of just about any passage or book in the Bible. Not to mention the issues that arise depending upon which translation we're using and on and on. We will discuss those later because addressing the texts, especially the Gospels and the New Testament, Is essential to the Christological argument and the biblical argument before we get to the Jesus part of the proof I intend to try and sort out the other arguments mentioned earlier that is the cosmological teleological transcendental and ontological arguments these mostly address the existence of God the creator and unmovable mover which is why I allude sometimes to a lesser included deists God. Nevertheless, Christian apologists who claim faith in Jesus of Nazareth as their personal and divine Savior make these arguments. In my opinion, to get to the theists God, the one that created the universe and is still active in it, including personal relationships with individuals, even blindly accepting these arguments, there are still a few more leaps of faith. As an aside, why are leaps of faith considered noble? Ignoring your inner sense of danger based upon your previous experience is sinfully wrong? This is pursuant to the salvationist religions that find nobility in a blind dive into ridiculousness based upon some human's claim of supernatural communication. Faith. No, really. I feel it. I had a dream last night that I was right. When I woke up, I could feel the power of the universe upon my shoulders and the voice of God in my ear whispering ever so softly. I mean, I could barely hear it. You are special. The Lord spoke to me last night. I have been called like so many of my relatives to speak in God's name. You can listen to me or not. It is truly your choice. But since my words are based on my conversations with God, you ignore them at your peril. I mean that with love. God clearly loves you. It takes that kind of love to threaten eternal suffering for failure to follow arbitrary rules. His ludicrous demands are beyond our understanding. He moves in mysterious ways, and mysteriously whispered in my ear last night. He even used a little tongue. His breath smelled of French roast coffee and chicory. Does that seem authentic? Witnesses are a necessary part of any trial. Testimony is evidence. Generally, witnesses can only testify about personal experience. For instance, an eyewitness may testify that they heard gunshots, then looked out the window, and saw an individual wearing a green jacket running down the street. Now, whether that would be relevant or admissible testimony in the imaginary case is another question, but... It's an example of proof offered through testimony of a witness. Witnesses can also be called just to authenticate certain items, like documents, recordings, photographs, or even to testify about chain of custody. Expert witnesses are called to introduce specialized information, and if deemed qualified by the court as an expert in a particular field, can give their opinion to a reasonable degree of certainty regarding that particular subject matter. The idea is to help the jury understand specialized information. Many times you see a battle of experts. Both sides present a qualified expert to rebut each other's opinion, and the jury must determine not only which expert is more credible, but whose opinion is more credible. Of course, When determining the credibility of an expert's opinion, the reliability of the expert's sources comes into play. Before we even get to the sources, an expert witness must first be qualified by the judge to testify as an expert so that they may offer an opinion. There is a test developed through case law for evaluating an expert. This is accomplished by questioning in what is referred to as a Daubert hearing. Daubert is a reference to a particular case that developed the test for qualifications of an expert to testify, mostly dealing with that expert's education, experience, and sometimes publication and prior instances of uh, testimony as an expert. As you can see, it is easy to get into an overly complicated trial practice lesson. And I apologize if I'm spending too much time on the rules and procedures, but In order to understand this exercise, I feel it necessary. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, holy crap, more law stuff. When do we get to God? And that's fair, but please stay with me. I promise I'll get to the meat of it soon. My philosopher friend is explaining again that the bottle of well-chilled beer in my hand might not be a bottle of beer. That the trickle of bottle sweat cooling in my palm might not be wet, might not be cool. That in fact it's impossible ever to know if I'm holding a bottle at all. I try to follow his logic flipping the stakes that are almost certainly hissing over the bed of coals. Coals I'd swear were black at first, then gray, then red. Coals we could spread out and walk on, and why not, I ask, since we'll never be sure if our feet burn, if our souls blister and peel, if our faithlessness is any better or worse a tool than the firewalkers can do extreme. Exactly, he smiles. Behind the fence, the moon rises, or seems to. Have another. Whatever else is true, the coals feel hotter than ever. As the darkness begins to do what darkness does. Another what? I ask. Philip Mimmer. My overall intention is to question why... When it comes to prosecutors' allegations of an individual committing the most heinous, depraved, and violent acts, we demand reliable proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But, when it comes to allegations of an invisible, silent, all-powerful, all-knowing, infallible, creator, planner, and best friend, the faithful shift the burden to the party that claims that it's all bullshit. The prosecutors claim to know the truth, and so we make them prove it. Believers claim to know the truth, and so we, I mean humans in general, should make them prove it. Next time we dig into the arguments. Love ya. Mean it.